Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. For our final trip around the Arrowverse, we're making a stop in Freeland. It's episode 287 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and we've been so jam-packed with stuff, with fall TV, especially the Arrowverse. Finally getting a chance to share my interviews with the cast of Black Lightning. I got to sit down with them at San Diego Comic-Con. We've already, we're already a few episodes in of Black Lightning now, but I still wanted to share all the great stuff. I guess you got a chance to talk with them about Black Lightning, like I said last week in my review, kind of feels like a brand new show, so we'll see what their thoughts might be on that maybe and a whole bunch of other stuff. Even some maybe crisis talk, maybe we'll work that in there. We'll find out here in a couple minutes. Also, speaking of Arrowverse, going to be giving my spoiler-filled review of the final season premiere of Arrow. I might sprinkle some Flash in there as well, and if you've seen it, you know exactly why. But you also know this show starts with comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're bagging and boarding or scrolling, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading in a couple of different groups that we're going to talk about actually this week. How about Metal Men number one from DC Comics, Dan DiDio and Shane Davis, the storytellers here, Michelle Delecki on the inks, Jason Wright on the colors, and Travis Lanham on the letters. Now, a lot of this issue actually centers around... Will Magnus. Not only is it a rare look inside the mind of a man who we perceived as a genius, but behind the curtain of the creation of the Metal Men as well. I mean, well, kind of. You'll understand why I say that. There's a big reveal in this book about that, actually. And, and it has to do with Magnus's struggle with some very personal issues when he gets a call that could kind of change everything for not only his own psyche, but for his career as well or his future really i mean there's there was kind of a discovery that was made and star labs needs his help and again i'm really not trying to i'm trying not to spoil anything but there's something that was very critical in dark knight's metal that was discovered and there's a problem let's just put it that way and and it's not something that was necessarily discovered in dark knight's metal it's it's a it's something that's been known in the dc universe for a while but it's manifested into something a little bit different this time around actually as far as asking for help, it's more like they, they have no choice but to ask for his help in this particular situation. And again, you'll find out why once you see the book. Now, this discovery is not really unprecedented, like I said, but it's very, very interesting, especially what happens to it and where. Now, turning the focus to the art in this book, it's absolutely incredible. And I think that that's really, really important when you're talking about the metal men. And we don't get to see a lot of them in this book, which is interesting, but the foundation of the story is also laying the groundwork here and very well done, by the way, by the storytellers. I think it's very interesting that this was the perspective that was taken and how things are going to be moving forward based on the reveal about Dr. Will Magnus, I think is going to be Really, really interesting to see if he makes any different choices here. The quest, the biggest question, though, I think, is how good is Will Magnus really? And I think that he's asking that question 
just as much as we are at the end of this first issue. So I got to tell you, it was definitely a different approach than I expected for this Metal Men story, but I kind of dug it. And I, I'm kind of interested to see, I'm actually very interested to see what happens in the next issue. So throw this in the poll box for me. This is a poll for me, Metal Men number one from DC Comics. But that is not the only number one I'm going to be talking about this week. How about the brand new X-Men number one? It's actually just called X-Men number one, but it's new because it's new a new number one for this year from Marvel Comics. Jonathan Hickman continuing on the writing here. Lionel Francis Yu on the art. Jerry Allen Julian on the ink. Sonny Go on the colors. And VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters. Did the best I could on those names. You guys know how I am at names, so I apologize if I butchered anybody's. First thing I can tell you right off the bat here is that you can jump right into this issue without reading House of X or Powers of X, but it would be super helpful if you did read those first, and it would make a few more things make a heck of a lot more sense, especially when it comes to Magneto and where they are. Now, this now I'll try not to spoil anything for those issues, though, for anybody that hasn't read their murder, who's been waiting for the trades. Now, this issue does feature a rescue at the kind of the very beginning of the book and reveals a new character that could play a role later on in the story. It's almost The character is almost there and gone as quickly as we see them, but based on what Polaris says this character is, that's where the intrigue lies and the fact that it's very, very quick. And it almost seems like it's it won't matter in the story, but something tells me this is not the, this is not the last time we will see this character for sure. What we do get to see is mutant kind both content and still a bit stressed out depending on your perspective and depending on who you're talking to and in whose opinion you're getting. Now, if you're reading Powers of X and House of X, you know what Magneto's position is now. And for me, I don't know about you, but it's still a bit hard to, to let that sink in, right? Exactly how Magneto is viewed now. Not necessarily by humans, but by his fellow mutants. I just think it's it's really interesting the way things have gone from Magneto, especially there's a couple scenes in this book, especially from the younger mutants, mutants where it's like, wow, Magneto's really, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily changed because I don't think he has. The perception of him absolutely 100% has. Now, the mutants settle into their new civilization. There's something going on millions of miles away that could really be a huge threat to them, and I'm not even sure that they know that it's going on. Some very strong minds are plotting against them. That's really all I can tell you without spoiling anything. What they might have discovered could really be a game changer in this battle that maybe the X-Men, they they kind of know what's coming, but they don't know how imminent it might be or where it might be coming from. Does that make sense? Because basically the X-Men have been battling their entire lives. And that's why this story continues to be deeply personal, a deeply personal and political one, because that is very much touched on in this story, especially when it comes to Cyclops and his family. There's a big narrative about that. So being invested in these characters is hugely important for your enjoyment of this book. It's a little bit of an extra-sized issue, too, and just like House of X and Powers of X, you get a little bit of extra inside info that Hickman provides as well, which, which I think is really neat. This book really does read like a drama series, and for your audience, and for that, your audience has to be invested in the characters just as much, if not more, than the story itself. It's hugely important. So, if you grew up an X Men fan and you just love these characters or a few characters in particular, as long as they're the right characters, yeah, you're really going to dig this book. 
The art can be beautiful at times in this book. When, I, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about there's certain scenes that just have to pop, and they do, but it can also feel a bit grounded as well. And that's not a criticism. There's just times where this book has to feel real, and you don't want the art to be too overwhelming on the page, and it certainly isn't. I mean, there's a moment between Cyclops and his father that's hugely beautiful, but then in the next couple of panels, it has to feel a little bit more grounded and real, and it does. And that transition art-wise isn't always easy either, so bravo to the art team on that. Now, how the revelation from the final page really plays out will have a lot to do with where the story is going moving forward. But the question is, is this story a bit too vast? Because, you know, it might not seem like we're dealing with a lot of different places, with a lot of different characters and a lot of different stories, but we kind of are. And you know that we've got the tie-ins coming up. You've got Marauders, you've got Excalibur, you've got New Mutants and a whole bunch of others. So, are those going to be required reading to be able to enjoy the main storyline? Or is that going to be a, hey, if you want more of a story on this particular group, go read this, like some tie-ins tend to be. So that's really that's really my only concern here. But, I mean, so far, so good as far as I'm concerned. So I am going to put this in the pull box. X-Men number one from Marvel Comics. So far, so good. Hopefully it stays on the right path. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to drop some spoilers for the Season 8 premiere of Arrow and maybe even some Flash mixed in as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah Desjardins from Impulse, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It used to be a crisis is coming, and now it's a crisis is already here. The Arrow Season 8 final season premiere has finally happened, and boy... There was a lot to digest there, wasn't there? Going to be doing a little bit of flash talk, too, and you know why. By the way, spoilers, just a ton of them from here on out, just for the Arrow Season 8 premiere and the previous episode of The Flash that aired right before it. So the first couple of episodes of this season of The Flash as well, since we're going to be talking a little bit about that. So, I mean, first of all, what what I loved about this right away was that you kind of start things off in this episode where everything started off, right? You see Lee and you, you see Oliver there. By the way, he's never looked more Green Arrow than he did in that one shot right there in Lee and you, right there at the beginning. He looked so Green Arrow from the comics there. So I love that right away, just from a nostalgic, you know, fan service point of view. And then you find out, yeah, it's Oliver coming home just like in season one, but everything's different. And why? Because... It's not his Earth. And the Monitor has brought him there to get something very specific. Now, I'm just going to run down some of the stuff that was different that I thought was really, really interesting. And I'm not going to do this in any particular order, by the way. First of all, you know, Mom's alive. Mora's alive. And you see her, and that's how it makes sense. You know, you saw the photos. You heard the announcement that she was going to be back. And you're like, how is that possible? Well, it's because they weren't on their Earth. So, Mora's alive. Malcolm Merlin is obviously alive in that Earth as well. By the way, he's married to Moira because, you know, dad dies on the gambit just like, you know, in the in the in the comics. So or or was he the Green Arrow at one point? Anyway, it's it's all very confusing, but but let's put it this way. Moira and Malcolm are married. Tommy is also there, and you know, he's still Oliver's best friend, and that all makes sense. We come to find out Thea died of a drug overdose while Oliver was gone. And that, you know, Tommy kind of blames himself in the city and Oliver a little bit too, if we're being honest. So that leads Tommy to be the Dark Archer 
by the way. But that's not the most interesting part of this, I don't think. You've still got good old Laurel Lance as Black Canary, so we've got that. But how about this? Adrian Chase. That's right. Prometheus himself is the Earth 2 Green Arrow. I geeked out so much when you saw him dressed as the Green Arrow, but then you heard that Prometheus music to just kind of remind fans, oh, by the way, yeah, that was Prometheus. I lost it. That was so good. I just loved that Prometheus character so much, and Josh Sagara does such a good job anyway. And then he said, hey there, pretty bird, and I about lost it again because that's another comics Easter egg that I've been waiting for in this show for so long, and we finally got it. I was just so stoked about that. But remember, for Oliver, this is, you know, he's experiencing things in a different way because this isn't his Earth, but he's going back to a time where it would have been his. But, you know, remember in Earth 2, Oliver never comes back from the Gambit. So you have to keep that in mind as we're going this. And and turns out what he's looking for are the dwarf star particles. The Dark Archer ends up getting them. He wants to destroy the Glades, just like his dad did in Earth 1. And it's because of Thea and, you know, those fights ensue and, and all that other stuff. So, I mean, that that was one of the interesting parts of the episode. And I, again, I won't go through every little bit of the episode. I, I think I kind of hit the major points that needed to be hit. And, you know, the monitor's like, hey, you, you want to get tied up and what's going on here? You're not supposed to do that. That's not what you're here for. And Oliver's like, uh, well, the thing I need to get is involved with this. So, yeah, that is what I'm here for. So you're already seeing a little bit of push and pull with the relationship between Oliver and the Monitor, which I thought was really, really interesting. And, I mean, the Monitor's really got no choice but to cave to what Oliver said at this point, right? And then I love Diggle. Diggle will follow Oliver anywhere, right? Because at first I thought, you know, Renee was going to be Earth 2 Diggle because he was kind of there and he was like Mr. Security Guy, and turns out he was really dirty and so was Dinah. But then you've got John Diggle, who travels from Earth 1 to Earth 2, finds Oliver... Traveling all over the place, thanks to Cisco, and the, it just shows this brotherly relationship, where there's nothing that Diggle won't do for Oliver. And brothers still fight. Like Oliver knocks him out to try and get Diggle to, you know, not follow him into this dangerous situation. Diggle ends up saving Oliver, and they have that moment where Oliver's like, "Look, you know, I know I can't stop you, so I guess we're kind of." in this together sort of thing. So, and you see that moment between them and you see how Diggle just kind of talks Oliver down saying, you know, look, Oliver's like, look who's alive because I wasn't here. And then Diggle makes him realize how crappy the world was without Oliver in it. So it's, they balance each other out so well. And especially Oliver needs Diggle so, so much. And I just really, really, you, you, you almost take for granted how special that relationship is until you see it put out there like that, right? So I really, really loved that moment between the two of them. And then you get to see it. Yep, you see that antimatter, and Earth 2 goes bye-bye. Gone. And I was shocked. At first I thought it was Earth 3, because I forgot where we were, thanks to Flash, because Flash is where we went to Earth 3, and I was confused. And then I was reminded, oh, by the way, that's Earth 2. So Earth 2, gone. So... Inevitably, the question, is Harrison Wells dead now? Is Jesse Quick dead now? Where was Kid Flash during all this? You know, where was 
where, where was he? Where are all these Earth Two characters that we remember? Are they are they now dead? Are they are they are they wiped out? Because we saw a few of them get wiped out, right? And remember Barry when he was going through what he was going through on the Flash. He said he saw the crisis. He saw all the possible scenarios, and the only one where everyone lives is if he dies. Well, does that include Oliver? Does it not include Oliver? Does Oliver have a place in all of this? And we're going to be talking about some crisis news here and nerd news in a couple minutes, and I want to save it for that. And I don't want to talk about any of it in this, but there are other things to talk about. But there's just so much to unpack in one episode of Arrow, and we still have several more to go before we even get to Crisis on Infinite Earths at all. But this first one had so much, not to mention, I even talked about the fact that we went, you know, back to 2040 Star City and Mia and her team and William was back and Connor's back and we know that his brother is Deathstroke now and it's it's all just, you know, you know John Diggle's son. It's, it's all crazy. The, everything that's going on in 2040 is crazy. And Mia... And and his and her team, that's not going well. They're still trying to find their groove to be a team together. The the young team still trying to find their footing. And I I, I love that Mia character, and I'm so so glad that that story is going to end up continuing because I think that that's going to be an amazing show. But again, talk about that in a minute. But a strong solid start to the season for Arrow. I expected nothing less. And it just looks like they're going to leave everything out there, right? I mean, including Batman's cowl with an arrow through it, which, again, another one of those things that makes you go, wow. And don't think I didn't catch the fact that they dropped Bruce Wayne's name in this episode, too, by the way. Let's let's not just gloss over that. But a solid start for the, Fla- for the Flash and for Arrow, both just so, so well done so far. And I just can't wait to see what's coming, even though I know that it eventually ends up in the end of Oliver Queen's story, or does it? Do they get the happy ending? Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Right now, that's going to do it for my Season 8 Arrow premiere review slash recap sort of thing. Up next, there's some nerd news. There's some crisis news. But first, the Batman takes center stage on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Woodside from Lucifer. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. A rogues gallery in the making. It's time for nerd news and a couple of big news items for the Batman coming up. And the first to break this week was the fact that Zoe Kravitz has been cast as Catwoman in the Batman. This according to Deadline, Matt Reeves' movie adds their Selena Kyle. And you know what's interesting about this is that, well, first of all, Zoe Kravitz is a completely qualified actress. To play Catwoman. She's already done this once. And you're thinking, when was that? It was the Lego Batman movie. She was the voice of Catwoman. And now she's going to be playing Catwoman in live action. Of course, absolutely, positively, no relation to the two roles whatsoever. We know that. It's just ironic because it usually works the other way, right? Somebody will play a character in live action and then they'll voice them in animation, right? It's, It's funny because, you know... Kevin Conroy is sort of doing that now. He's been he was bat the voice of Batman in so many things, and now he's going to be Bruce Wayne in Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is super super interesting. Hopefully he'll suit up, but I'll get to that some some other time. Anyway, so I think Zoe Kravitz is going to do a fantastic job first of all because she has shown in many many things that she's been in, 
that she is very capable of pulling this off. But, you know, even though if you have a talented actress like her and Robert Pattinson, who, again, I think is going to do a good job as Bruce Wayne and Batman, the chemistry between the two of them still has to be spot on. Whether we're talking about Catwoman, the villain here, or you're talking about Catwoman, where her and Bruce are sort of doing this little dance as to whether or not they want to be together or they or they are together in this particular scenario. Because remember, we don't really we really know zilch about this plot, even other than it's going to be a detective story, which, duh, you kind of figured that would be the case no matter what they do, right? Because you are talking about the world's greatest detective here. So, I mean, I, I do think that she'll do a great job, but the chemistry between, between the two of them means everything. If you do not have that chemistry, none of the rest of it is going to matter. It doesn't matter how good your actors are if the chemistry between the two of them is not there on screen because, again, whether they're adversaries or not, that chemistry still has to be there between the two of them because that's what's expected from fans. And again, maybe that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but that is the way it is. Now, there is another member of the Rogues Gallery that is quite interesting as well. We do have our Riddler, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Paul Dano is going to be playing the Riddler. You've seen him in Oakja. He was in There Will Be Blood, 12 Years a Slave. He's been in a ton of amazing, you know, Academy Award and Emmy-nominated stuff. And he's going to be playing the Riddler. Now, here's the interesting part about this. We're talking about Edward Nashton, who would later become Edward Nigma. And before you get your, you know, self in a nerd twist here, New Earth Riddler in the comics was born Edward Nashton. And then when he joined a carnival, that's when he became Nigma and ultimately the Riddler. So, yes, there is canon here. Don't go all nutty. It takes just a little bit of research and a little bit of reading to figure out that this is still canon. And what we're going to be getting is a obviously much earlier version of Riddler than we're used to getting. That's what I'm assuming anyway, given the fact that we're using the Nashton name. So I think very this is a very interesting thing that Matt Reeves is weaving here because just how far back are we going? And are we going to suggest that it almost like it's almost like we're trying to decide whether or not Batman is creating the villains that he fights against, which has been a theme in, in other things in the past, but it almost feels like if we're going to go that far back, is that what we're going for here? Or are we going to do more of a zero-year type thing? I still think this is going to be a completely original story, and I think that's one of the reasons that Reeves has decided to go the route that he's going with, with Riddler. And I haven't seen anything about Jeffrey Wright being confirmed yet, As Commissioner Gordon, correct me if I'm wrong there, we do know that Jonah Hill is out now. Still don't know if he was supposed to be Penguin or Riddler or what was going on there, but he's out according to multiple reports. So the Batman is taking shape, and I mean, who knows? Are we going to get another villain that's going to be cast? Are we going to see some stuff get confirmed here shortly, some other stuff? I just think it's going to be really interesting. And don't forget, the big day, it's coming, June 25th, 2021, and I cannot wait. Now let's switch over to the Marvel movie side for a second because they've got somebody that's going to be running a whole lot more than the movies now. It's Kevin Feige who is going to be running basically all of Marvel now according to Variety. Now Feige will be the chief creative officer of Marvel Studios, TV, 
animation, and the comics. That's everything. Now, according to another report from Variety, though, Dan Buckley is going to remain the president of Marvel Entertainment. He's going to continue to oversee publishing with creative and editorial and reporting to Feige. Now, here's the thing. I think that this is, you know, you're, you're certainly, you see what he's done with the movies and you say, you know, why can't we do that with everything else? This puts a lot of faith in one man based solely on the success of a cinematic universe, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's one thing to make things work in a series of movies, but making something else altogether to make that work in the world of comics and everything else, that's a tall order, man. And I mean, that's just not, I mean, that's not to say Feige can't do this, but he'll have to depend on some a much larger stable of creative talents to make this work. Buckley just being one of them, he, he's not going to be able to have his in, hands in every single thing, every single second. They, I mean, think about what it takes to run a movie studio like Marvel. And that's basically what Feige's been doing. Now you're asking him to take on television, animation, and comics? Those things alone are a huge undertaking. Now you're asking one person to oversee all of it. And there's no word on, you know, where what Jeff Loeb's role in, is in all this, is he, if he's still going to be involved. But basically, Feige has to know he's going to have to delegate to certain people, right? There's certain, he's going to have to count on certain people. And maybe they are looking at him as more of the, they trust his ability to seek out talent to be able to make these things great and not necessarily have his hands in them directly because how could you have your hands in that many things directly? But does this divide his attention and his focus a bit too much away from Marvel Studios? My only worry about this, and I know this might be stupid and it might be crazy, but I have to say it out loud just to make myself feel better, okay? Is this just going to be a literally everything is connected sort of situation and all of a sudden you see this linear storytelling between the comics, the TV, the animation, and the movies? Because if it's all centered around one particular kind of story, that that's not going to work out, man. I know that the Marvel movies are good and they're so successful, but they're not all good. They might all be successful, but they're not all good. That's I know that's a super hard thing for Marvel fans to admit. It's true. They are not all great. I'm sorry. No, uh, there's Nothing is all great. There are very, 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 very few things that are all great. Okay, and Marvel movies are on that list. We cannot necessarily say that they have all been great. Okay, it's, it's, you just have to admit that. So here's the deal. I'm just worried that everything's going to be one thing and everything's going to be similar. And some other great stuff's going to get lost in the shuffle, more specifically for the comics than anything else. Because I think that, you know, the TV was going to be headed in that direction anyway after Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's nothing we can really do about that. And even S.H.I.E.L.D. was kind of tied down by that. So at this point, I'm just hoping that we don't get that going over to the comics as well. Because that... That would just be a shame. I would hate to see that happen. Now it's time to get on some Crisis on Infinite Earths news. And there was a ton of it this week. And one thing, I want to go back a little bit further, though, to talk about something that has already been talked about for almost a week now, but I want to bring it up anyway. And that is the fact that Tom Ellis' Lucifer 
was possibly spotted, and I say possibly because it can't be confirmed, on the Crisis on Infinite Earth set. And this comes from Canada Graphs on Twitter, who has, you know, been photographing some of those set photographs that you've seen on social media and stuff like that. And they say that there was, you know, some headlights blinding people so they couldn't get pictures and couldn't see, but they said that the scene involved David Ramsey, Catherine McNamara, and Matt Ryan. So if we get, finally get, a meeting on screen between John Constantine and Lucifer Morningstar, I will lose it to a level that I don't think we've ever heard on this show. I will geek out so hard. I don't care if it's for a couple of seconds. I don't care if it's a few sentences. This is something that I have... I asked. Remember, I asked Matt Ryan about this. If you don't believe me, go to downandnerdypodcast.com, search for the Matt Ryan interview, and you'll hear me ask Matt Ryan about it and how cool that would be. I, I asked that question never actually thinking it was going to happen. And now that there, there's even a slight chance that it will happen, I will geek out to a level not heard of on the show before. I'm just warning you right now. As a matter of fact, if you haven't done, if you haven't seen any of my watch parties on TV Co, download the TV Co app. That's TVCO on your favorite app store. And I do watch parties every Sunday and Tuesday night for Arrowverse shows. So Batwoman, Supergirl, The Flash, and Arrow. So I'll be watching Crisis live with you, you could see my reaction in real time because it is going to be completely 100% off the rails. I'm just going to warn you about that right now. It's it's going to be epic if this actually happens. Speaking of epic, we saw the first look of LaMonica Garrett as the anti-monitor. Of course, she's going to be playing both the monitor and the anti-monitor in a crisis. Entertainment Weekly was the first to show that. I mean, it looks good. Obviously, I can't show it to you. You'd have to go to downandnerdypodcast.com to see it because, I mean, it's a podcast and I can't show you any pictures here. But I will say this. He looks like he could play a hell of a death, um, a hell of a dark side too, doesn't he? LaMonica Garrett looks good as the anti-monitor. I didn't really doubt that. But, you know, the, the, the look is not exactly 100% comics accurate, but, you know, neither is the Arrowverse. But I got to tell you, making him look menacing and making him look pretty damn evil and not at all like the Monitor... They did a really good job with that. So as menacing as that is, I, I think that that's going to be look really, really cool once we get it on screen. And we're not going to have to wait too much longer before we see the anti-monitor, right? First week of December, that's when Crisis starts. I think it's December 8th, correct me if I'm wrong on that. That's when Crisis on Infinite Earths starts. Now, here's something interesting, because the, there was a lot of rumors that when Stephen Amell said that he was going to be playing more than one character in Crisis, there were a lot of rumors, right, that, okay, it's going to be the Spectre. That's who Stephen Amell is going to play. That's his second role. Well, that is not true, as it turns out. Stephen Lobo, who was in Supernatural, is going to be playing Jim Corrigan slash the Spectre. Now, we don't know if he's going to go full Spectre or not, but that is the report that has come out there is that he's going to play that character. Now, here's an interesting little nugget that I just can't help but bring up. Now, this is the one time that they could have actually gone, again, into their own bag of tricks here that they've had before and just use the same actor for a role, right? Well, and this report was from IGN, by the way, that the whole Stephen Lobo thing. Now, remember, there was a Jim Corrigan. The Spectre was in the Constantine live-action series played by Emmett J. Scanlon. Now, that name might sound familiar. Well, he played Lobo 
in Krypton. And now Stephen Lobo is going to play Jim Corrigan on Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's not a pun, people. This is real life. This is actually happening. So you can't get on my case for this. This is something that's going down. And I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that Lobo will do Stephen Lobo will do a great job as as Jim Corgan because they, it seems like they're getting these these this casting right right off the bat, and I love that. They seem to really really be pulling out all the stops for this, and they really seem to be taking extra care to get this right. So I, I've got a good feeling about where they're going with Christ's Son and Infinite Earth. So if they say Stephen Lobo is the right man for the job. Then I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, he's he's going to be the right man for the job. I'm, I'm trusting them on this. Speaking of trust, there's got to be a lot of trust for Season 2 of Carnival Row. And the reason I say that is the deadline reports that there is a huge shakeup behind the scenes of Amazon's Carnival Row before Season 2. The first thing is Mark Guggenheim is going to be leaving as showrunner. Now, he's not quitting. He's not being replaced or quitting or anything like that. It's just one of those things where he needs to focus his time on the Arrowverse, and he's just kind of taking a step back. So he's, so he's not quitting. He's still going to stay on as a consultant. But as far as day-to-day showrunner, he's decided to take a step back. Now, Eric Olson, who was one of the showrunners for Marvel's Daredevil, is going to take over as showrunner for season two of Conor Rowe. And by the way, Carrie Delevingne, is going to be one of the executive producers coming up in season two as well. Orlando Bloom already had those stripes. So it's not like there aren't people that were involved in the show that are going to be part of it now. That's still happening. But here's maybe the most interesting thing, and maybe the most troubling. One of the co-creators of Carnival Row, Travis Beecham, who, of course, you know, I was at the press conference when he was there at Comic-Con this year. He is exiting the show over one guess. Yep, creative differences. That was the reason that was cited. Now, the this is based on a script that beat the whole show is based on something that Beecham wrote in two thousand and five. I think it was two thousand and five. Anyway, now Amazon hasn't commented on any of this. We don't know what the differences were. Nobody's really saying anything. But this is very very interesting that this would come out now and that this would happen now. And I don't know. Maybe this is for the best, and maybe it's not, but you see a showrunner leave and a co-creator of the show leave that never seems to bode well for it, but they are getting a legit showrunner in Olsen who, I mean, tell me there were any bad seasons of Daredevil, because there weren't. So obviously Olsen was at least somewhat a part of that, and you have to give him at least a little credit for it. So let's not say... You know, that they're not going to have a legit showrunner. Plus, you've got the two stars of the show that are on as executive producers. They've built their characters up. They have a certain ownership to those characters and want to see their stories told to the fullest, and as do we. So I think that this show's going to be okay. I mean, I'm still I'm still a bit cautious, especially when you get the co-creator leaving. Obviously, they wanted to do something with the show that he wasn't cool with. And they said, well, you know, we've got the rights to the show now, so see you later sort of thing. Uh, well, I don't know who said see you later to who, if it was Beecham or, or Amazon. And there's no comments there. So that's purely speculation on my part. But, uh, again, that that is somewhat troubling. But at the same time, that just because the co-creator said that that wasn't the way he wanted to go 
doesn't mean that the way they're going to end up going isn't the right way. So, again, I'm still looking forward to Season 2 of Carnival Row. No release date set for that yet. I will keep you posted when there is one. That's going to do for Nerd News. Up next, time to talk to the cast of Black Lightning about Season 3, and we'll do that. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sierra Renee, and I play Hawkgirl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The Markovian threat is coming, and Season 3 of Black Lightning is already here, and I was lucky to get a chance to sit down with the cast at San Diego Comic-Con this year. First up, actually, China Ann McLean, who plays Jennifer Pierce on the show. And the first question for her was, are we going to see her suiting up more this season? No, I'm definitely going to be suiting up more this season because we really had to get the suit perfect, so it took longer than what we expected. I think I was supposed to be in it sooner. But, you know, you don't want to go on with something like half done. You know what I mean? The next question for China N was, will we get to see Jennifer have her own adventures this season? I think it might be a mixture. You know what I'm saying? Like, because she's kind of a hothead and she doesn't listen. She's hard-headed as well. So she might go out and try and do her own thing. Might get her into trouble like it did with the 100 gang. You know what I'm saying? Last season. But hopefully it'll be more fighting with the family because I love to do that. I love doing fight sequences with the other characters. The question I had for China and McLean was, it looks like Khalil is back in the picture, so how is she going to deal with that? So it seems like she just made her peace with the whole Khalil thing, and at the end of the last season, we see... So how do you think she might react if she finally sees him again? I mean... I don't know how she's going to react, to be honest. We're only a week into filming, by the way, so we don't really know too much. But what I do know is, and what I'm going to say, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm saying it anyway, Khalil comes back different. So I don't really know how that situation is going to work out, but I I don't know if they're going to be romantically involved anymore. (laughs) I don't know if that's the same situation. Finally, China Ann McLean was asked, how much do they actually know about what's coming up this season? Listen, <laughs> they haven't told us much, is the thing. So as we are getting the new scripts, we read them like, oh my God. And then we contact each other or we see each other the next day on set like, did you see what we're doing next week? So I don't really know too much about my art. I should probably ask Salim about that. <laughs> I should have asked him before I came here, huh? <laughs> yes, I got to have more to give y'all, but that's okay. No spoilers. No spoilers. I did get to sneak in one more question to China and McLean, and that was, how does it feel kind of moving on from Tobias and focusing on something else this season? How does it feel going from very Tobias-heavy in the first two seasons now moving on to the Markovians in this season? It feels very different. Like, I think the whole cast is so used to Tobias being the threat. You know what I'm saying? It's always been Tobias, Tobias, Tobias. And he, all, he has his finger in everything in every pot so it's it's a little bit strange but I think that it's going to be good to switch it up a little bit because we're still going to see Tobias he's still going to be around but yeah just to switch it up a little bit for this season it's cool next up was a guy we didn't really know that we'd be seeing or talking to and that was Jordan Calloway who of course plays Khalil on Black Lightning so my first question for him was did he know that he was going to be back now did you know that you'd be back for this upcoming season or was that kind of a surprise for you 
for the upcoming season. Okay, so after my spine, I can tell you guys this now. After uh, my spine, I read that my spine was ripped out. Salim came and talked to me, and he was saying, "Hey, brother, so listen, this is what I want to do. I want to bring you back at the end of the uh, season and put you in a box." I was like, Whew, "Okay." <laughs> It feels good. Yeah, still exactly. <laughs> Job security is a serious thing. I'm telling you, man, it's crazy. But um, but yeah, I was really excited to, to to know that Khalil Painkiller is not actually dead. You know. It's hard to talk to Jordan Calloway and not ask him about that scene with Tobias where his spine gets ripped out. So how was that for him? Oh, I said, bring it on. Let's go. Make sure we got blood on standby because I'm going to have fun with this one. <laughs> it was it was fun. And then our uh, props team, uh, Don at the time, they they put together a phenomenal uh, piece of art that you guys saw, the animatronics. I mean, and it, it was funny. I was even playing with it on, on the wild. Like, it, it was really, we got some really talented get people, really, really talented people um, on, on the show and I just want yeah give them a shout out as well you know you heard China and McLean say that Khalil was going to come pack different so let's ask Khalil himself about that well I was telling them you know um, I think the change is going to come where you see he's probably yeah I can't tell you actually yeah that's, that's <laughs> <good. laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I can't but I mean he, he'll probably look a little bit older I mean, I, maybe that's maybe that's what it is. But let, let's look at it from seasons, right? So we had Khalil where we saw him before he was damaged, before he was, you know, hurt. Um, but you saw that he was he was a good kid. You saw where his heart was. You know, he had a heart of gold. And then we go to the point where, all right, he has everything taken from up under him. So everything that he knew, everything that he had, it's just taken from up under him. And he has two choices, all right, light or dark. He takes the path of darkness. But then we also see in season two, you see the consequences of your choices. And that's one of the things that the show does a really good job at. You see consequences of your choices. And now Khalil, he realized that. And the redemption for him came in seeing the thing, the, the individual that he loved, you know, the, his mother um, and also Jen. He realized he, he has to sacrifice himself in order for their safety. Um, and, and, and for that, that was the huge redeeming character of who he was. So him dying, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, wow, great, full character art. That's wonderful. He's, he's, he's good. He is a great character art. And then they tell me, you know, no, we're not done with you. So it's like, well, okay, let's, uh, <laughs> well, he's probably going to be uh, interesting, you know. He might, you know, go both sides, good or bad. I mean... We saw what he was doing when he was under the control of Tobias, and now you add another huge big bad, Agent Odell. The stakes are much higher for him. And and I mean when you when you had Tobias, Tobias he has control, but Agent Odell, he has power. So what happens if you were to cross an individual like that? So, I mean, maybe that's the most that I can tease you guys with that. My final question for Jordan was, does he hope to get that rematch with Tobias at some point? Do you hope that Khalil gets to maybe have a little bit of a rematch with Tobias? Yo, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me tell you something. I want Khalil to take names. I want him to get numbers. He got slapped around by everybody season two, okay? I talked to Salim and said, you got to give me one win. That's what I want to see from Khalil. <laughs> but you know what? On that note, 
mic drop. <laughs> Next up was the wonderful Christine Adams, who of course plays Lynn Pierce on the show. And the first question for her was, you know, now that we've seen the green light babies, they're out. So is Lynn going to make that her personal mission this season? to get them back. You know, it's interesting because, again, with the grey areas with the character, you know, I think on the one hand, Lynn does have sort of um, good intentions in terms of saving the children and, and figuring out the riddle. And at the same time, I do think that Lynn is incredibly ambitious. And I think there's something that's driving her to find out for her own self, you know, worth or her own self-need. So I think... I think there's partly kind of saving the children and there's partly kind of just a very ambitious, I'm not going to let this rest until I solve, you know, there's that ego part of it. So I think those two things, and I think also her relationship with Agent Odell, you know, they kind of need each other. So I think that's going to get a little bit more kind of entangled and strange, you know, because they're kind of enemies, but they sort of need each other, you know, so superpowers yet you got to get your hands dirty a little bit last season oh didn't I just you hope to be able to do more this season yeah I mean I love doing I'm always jealous of these guys because they get to do the fights and the stunts but they have to work twice as hard because I go to work I say my lines then they have to go off and do the fight training and the stunt training so it's like it's kind of I'm I'm torn because I do want to have more opportunities to do that kind of stuff but it's basically going to be a lot more work because you know those things take a lot of time but we'll see I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if she has another Smackdown fight with someone because at this point she's kind of said I'm going to do whatever I need to do and she's done it I mean she killed a man season one didn't she season two she took picked the shotgun up again and then basically beat the crap out of Dr. Jace almost rendering her unconscious she had it coming yeah totally yeah. Mm -hmm. but she, she's she's a by any means necessary type person then don't be fooled by the white coat and the glasses <laughs> Someone had to ask about the Markovians eventually, so the question was, how are they going to be playing into things? I think the Markovians kind of opened the door, probably to the outsiders. So, yes! Probably, probably. Oh. That's what I'm feeling. <laughs> that feels like the direction we're going to go in. I don't know, and I don't know how long it's going to take. It might be like two seasons before we even get there, but that, that door is open, right? Next to sit down is Marvin Corden Jones, who of course plays Tobias Whale. And the first question for him was, you know, how does it feel to be a consistent big bad on a TV show. That doesn't happen very often. I'm honored, you know. I'm, I feel very privileged. I feel extremely blessed, you know, because you're right. I do follow this, this, this a lot of other shows, and it, it changes a lot, you know. Um, I think maybe Gotham was the only one that had, like, a consistent one, right? Um, and they, they, they changed, I think, too, or added more. Um, I feel very blessed, you know, luckily for me and my character, um, he is the big bad in the, the, the story of Black Lightning, you know, it wasn't like a lot of other people came into the story arc, um, so luckily for me, and, and, and Tobias Will also was in other worlds, Suicide Squad, Batman, and, and on, so um, I, I feel just honored and, and privileged to be able to play the character. And, and to be going into my third season as the big bad on the show, you know, it's, 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 it's overwhelming. You know, it's a dream come true. So my question for Marvin was, how does Tobias feel about the Markovians coming into the mix? So now that the Markovians are coming into the mix, do you think that's something Tobias will be 
with or maybe even against, maybe they'll be like a turf war. He's an all or nothing kind of guy, you know. I don't think that he's going to be willing to share that power with anybody. I think we learned from season one, you know, when he was working with the, um, um, well, the ASA and then it was the um, the council, you know, that, that, that Jill Scott was, was, Lady Eve, excuse me, was, was working for or the head of. But but no, so there. Yeah, I don't, we saw um, then that Tobias didn't want to, you know, share that. You know, um, with Proctor, we saw we saw in the ASA that he wasn't willing to work with Proctor and and share that. You know, in the in the end of season one, um, moving forward, I don't think that he's going to be willing to share that position. You know, um, it, even though it might seem like it for a time. Um, something's going to happen. Where he's going to he's going to you know manipulate his way back to the top and and to being the, the the sole you know controller. The next question was an interesting one. That it seems like Tobias might have figured out that Jefferson Pierce is Black Lightning. So is that the case? And what's he going to do about that? You know, it's an interesting question, man. And I'm I'm curious as you are to see how because I think that we let on that he does kind of know what's going on here, um, or there's something. Here, um, especially in the last episode, you know, when they come flying through the window and the girl, and there's something happening. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how he, you know, uses that to his advantage. You know, I, I know that that whatever happens, he's going to use it to his advantage totally. So. Um, I'm glad that it's unfolding. After talking to Tobias Will, who better to talk to next than Black Lightning himself? That is Cress Williams. So the first question for him was, I mean, what can he say about what's coming with the Markovian? Well, I think it's going it's, 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 it's gonna to expand everything. You know, we're going to get more, I feel like we're going to get more more villains. Um, and I feel like we've been, and more metas. And I think then we're going to probably need more metas as well. So I think, it's, I think everything's just going to really expand. Next question for Chris was, are we going to see Jefferson Pierce, the teacher, and the mentor at all this season? I hope so. I mean, that's one of the things. It's like, I hope, um, I, I don't actually know, but I would I would hope by the end of season three to have my school back. That would be really cool because that's a, I think it's an important aspect. But, um, you know, I also understand that the conflict is getting so complicated that it's going to be hard to get it back. Um Maybe it's a maybe you know we'll end on a on a sweet note and get a, a, a breath and so then I could kind of go back to the school that before. My question for Chris Williams was how is it going to feel having Jefferson kind of be taken away from his community by the Markovians? We're so used to Jefferson being somebody who's there for his community. Yeah. And now the Markovians may be taking him away from that. But how is how is he going to feel about being taken away from this community? He's always been so protective. Well, I think the first thing you know we pick up with Jefferson just trying to figure out how to keep his daughters out of it, you know, and um, and trying to make compromises and deals, sacrifices, really, uh, to, like, keep them out of the fray. And that's, the, you know, really, and it's going to take them to some, some dark places in order to do that. So. Next, a very interesting question. Where are things at between Jefferson and Tobias going into this season? You know, Tobias, uh, I think first... Jefferson's got to discover really what, because he doesn't, everything got so crazy and complicated by the end of, of season two. He's got to like first discover what really happened with Tobias, but um, I don't want to spoil anything. I think it's, it's going to, um, 
there's going to be more layers to it. Next up, it's the amazing Nafisa Williams. And the first question that I asked for her is, and we kind of know this because we've seen the first couple of episodes already, are we done with Blackbird or what? I know you guys have kind of got a lot going on with the Markovians and everything, yes. but Blackbird, are we done with that or are we going to see I don't think so. I don't think so. I like I like Blackbird. She's a rebel, and she takes matters into her own hands. She's a little bit more ruthless than Thunder, but sometimes that's necessary when you're dealing with the Markovians trying to save your community. Next question up for Nafisa was, what's something she really hopes to see for Anissa this season? I hope for her to fight with her family. I really want to, you know, as a family, put our suits on and kick ass. I think for my character, that's what she's wanted from, like, first season. And now that Jennifer has come into her own and she has a costume and we're all accepted who we are, it's, like, really time to do it together. That's what I'm most excited for and hoping for. And also hoping to mend that relationship with Grace, too. The next question was an interesting one. What is an, what is Anissa's biggest obstacle this season? I thought her answer was pretty interesting. I think is she's really, really uh, heartbroken. And I think making sure that that vulnerability and that, that heartbreak doesn't interfere with what she has to do within her community. Like, she's really heartbroken over this Grace thing. Still, as you can see in season two, it was really hard for her. Yeah, so I think it's about, you know, staying focused. My question for Nafisa Williams was, does she hope to at some point see a Thunder and Lightning-centric episode of Black Lightning? We saw Arrow do a Birds of Prey episode, which you like to do a Thunder and Lightning-centric episode of Black Lightning. Oh, of course. That sounds like something I want to do. For sure. I think, again, what I'm most excited about is for, for Lightning and Thunder to, like, really hit the streets. You know what I mean? I think that's exciting. I think uh, little girls deserve that. I think women deserve to see that. And I'm excited about it. Final question for Nafisa Williams was, are there, any, are there any characters coming up this season you're excited to see introduced, or would you like to see any characters get introduced into the show? Some of these Markovian guys are really, really interesting, and um, I won't say his name, but one of them I grew up watching on TV, and to have him now on our show is always like the kid in me comes out. So look out for some of the Markovian guys and some of the ASA. They're really cool. We would like to see Static Shock come to the show. Yes. I get that question more than any 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 other question. Um, that instant Thunder Grace. Hard not to agree with that, and maybe that's something we will see at some point Monday nights at 9 o'clock. That is when you can watch Black Lightning on the CW Part 3 of the Book of Occupation arc is happening this coming Monday. As a matter of fact, you definitely do not want to miss that. And make sure you're looking out for Cress Williams, Black Lightning himself, in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover sometime in December. We know that that's happening now, and that is definitely exciting news. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the Warner Brothers crew and everybody from Black Lightning for letting me hang out at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Find us on social media, downandnerdypodcast.com. That's the website, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Make sure you're watching our watch parties as well on TV Co. Download the TV Co. app, that's TVCO, and find me at downandnerdy there. Follow me there, and you can watch all the live watch parties every Sunday and Tuesday night. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.